This is The Crucible. The JRTC Experience. This is the Aviator's Corner. In this series, we discuss aviation warfighting skills and lessons learned in a decisive action training environment for large-scale combat operations at JRTC. Hi, I'm uh, Colonel Matt Hardman, the Commander of Operations Group here at the Joint Readiness Training Center. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we have a great discussion uh, in front of us about the employment of aviation uh, in large-scale combat operations. And you have Lieutenant Colonel Jesse Blanton. I'm the JRTC Aviation Senior Trainer, and I'm a Black Hawk pilot by trade. I've been here for a couple of months and been down here many times on rotation. And I'm Lieutenant Colonel Tony Fusilero. Uh I am the current commander of 2nd Squadron, 17th Cavalry out of Fort Campbell. Just finished up rotation 2209. Uh, organically as an Apache pilot, came down here with an aviation task force. Okay, so aviation aviator by trade. Yes, sir. And then I heard you also do CrossFit. Is that right? <laughs> yes, sir. So which one do you talk about? So, I mean, usually you have to wait about 30 seconds before telling everybody you're an Apache pilot. So you, you got to get there really quickly. That way people are impressed initially, and then you can talk about your CrossFit stats. Okay, so you lead in with uh, being a pilot, and then you transition to CrossFit. Absolutely, all the okay. time. Outstanding. No, hey, I, uh, I really had a, a lot of fun watching your unit this rotation and uh and watching what you did and um and uh you actually didn't overly talk about being a pilot you talked about being a warfighter uh which was great and uh and your team had a great rotation it was a ton of fun um so next question uh, do you fly the watch <laughs> yes sir every aviator has to be able to move both of their hands simultaneously so at any given time you can talk about how you were covering other people in the dark in the dark all the time okay awesome Outstanding. All right, and then the third question I have, and this is really for both of you, is how many times have you watched Firebirds? <laughs> we, we think the Army's got to step up their game because the Navy's got Top Gun, the Army's got Firebirds, and as much as we all love Nicolas Cage, that's not exactly a fair fight between Top Cruise and Tom Cruise and Top Gun. Um, oh, wow. I don't know. I mean... You, so I'm thinking a reboot of Firebirds with Nick Cage. Is I that... think I think that would be totally fair as long as they redo the Humvee scene where he learns how to fly in the bag. That's the only one. That's the, okay. And fair. we got to get some real aircraft in the next Firebirds. Get yeah, some black absolutely. Yeah, I've seen it many times. That's why I'm not an Apache pilot. Didn't didn't. Tur it turned you off enough that you're like, I can't do it. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Fair enough. Okay, I'm glad we got the important stuff out of the way. All right, so. Uh, you know, coming down here, uh, three one-on-one Rakasans, um, what surprised you in the rotation? Uh, so I, I think the piece that is replicated the best is just the sheer op tempo, the stress of combat. Uh, you are always going to be pushing harder. Uh, down here, we were taking aviators who are used to flying, you know, flying at night. Campbell does a pretty good job of putting us in those mission profiles, but you're not doing six or eight hours of flight every night. 
And down here, you're going to do that. You're going to be in in the marathon from the word go. Uh, and I appreciated the op-tempo, but I think it also it achieved that crucible effect, even from the aviation perspective. Nights that you're not flying, you're planning till 3, 4, 5 in the morning. Uh, essentially, the entire task force is on deep nights. And, you know, they're they're not all used to that. So it was a good test for our team and really making sure that everybody could pull their weight. If you come down here thinking a few people are going to be able to carry the task force, it's not going to happen. No, I mean, that's, I think, one of the trends. I, you can't you can't hero ball this, right? I no, mean, sir. It, it takes the development of leaders over time, um, building that depth yes, sir. of leaders, and then, you know, the focus on systems and processes. Uh, people get tired. Even aviators get tired with crew rest. Uh, but systems and processes don't get tired. Without question. Uh, and relationships. So, I mean, we had somewhat of a habitual relationship with the Rakasans, and that was absolutely critical. Because when you're trying to get updated information at 3 in the morning, if you don't have the relationship where you know the guy on the other end and you know specifically what you're asking for, then you're not getting the answer. So tell us about your train-up uh, coming to uh, JRTC to fight the dreaded Tarikans. <laughs> yes, sir. So uh, the division, 101st Airborne Air Assault Division, is pushing hard to get us back into the field. Uh, we've been doing these division training densities, which is essentially three-week clips where the entire division is in the field, including mm -hmm. aviation. Uh, we're already split into our multifunction aviation task forces, and we are out there integrated with the BCTs, doing air assaults, doing, you know, all the normal attack reconnaissance security missions and doing them from a field site, full sustainment, uh, certainly dispersion, camouflage, even aviators occasionally wear camouflage on their face. I mean, not every day, but it, it happens. So <laughs> so uh, we had a few good reps with the Rakasans prior to this. And then about a month before the rotation, we did a Rakasan Phoenix, which is essentially a culminating exercise includes about five to seven days of a JRTC-like op tempo. Uh, the op four isn't quite as robust as Geronimo is down here, but it gives us the opportunity to make sure some of those processes are in place. Yeah, and I mean, some of the great feedback I got from uh, the aviation team, alpha team, um, uh, NCOs with chainsaws cutting down trees yes, to be able to get the FARP, um, the bags Deeper. inside the wood line. Yes, sir. So, I, I mean, I think we very much are starting to realize if you're looking at LISCO, you don't you don't kill aircraft when they're in the air. You kill them on the ground. So they're going to use you. Well, hold on. Everybody <laughs> needs to hear that, right? So if you're an infantryman or a field artillery uh, or uh, armor, we kill helicopters on the ground. That's exactly what we want to be doing. All right, sir, I'm sorry. So, keep so going. UAS made my, like made my yeah. my dark heart proud. UAS is going to find us. Uh, we've been working really hard at at presenting them with more challenges. So at a minimum, we want to make sure that they can't find the main command post. They have a hard time finding the FARP. Uh, the aircraft are still the long pole in the tent. What we're playing right now is they're not going to be able to, in one artillery volley, kill everything, all the aircraft. So we're getting really dispersed across large drop zones. Uh, and then we're working through camouflage. We've had a few different companies come out and test aviation camouflage with the aircraft. So if we can get to that point, then you're talking about aviation being survivable in the TAA. 
which is going to be critical going forward. Yeah, I, I want to comment on that dispersion. So when you roll up to the aviation TA, obviously I knew where they were, but you would never know there was an entire aviation battalion there. And and you're talking about the aircraft where you had you had them dispersed out, you know, five five miles apart, all up next to the wood line. So you see an aircraft here and there. Uh, so there are some challenges with that, but the dispersion that, that you're able to achieve, and I know it's through multiple training because I, I was there at the 101st when it was when it started, but yeah, it's top notch. So, so definitely share those practices with the rest of the army. And, and the signature reduction, you know, for your command post, that's the first time I haven't seen the satellite dish just you yep. know advertised to Geronimo. Here I am, you know, the camo netting, the procedures you're able to 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 employ that system using a Humvee with most of the stuff in the back of the Humvee. That was another. Um, best practice. Right, absolutely. So the STT is completely covered with specialized camo netting. Uh, we've practiced trying to find it with both our organic shadows and Apaches. And that's what we were doing in the OLEs. We'd set up our footprint and then I'd send my own recon assets up there. Okay, what does it look like? What can I see? What stands out? And that's how over time we've learned to better hide our footprint. So STT is critical. You got to hide it. The FARP's critical. Uh, and then the main command post stays buried deep in the trees, separated from everybody else. So if nothing else, the enemy's going to have to work hard to find it, and they're not going to be entirely sure what they're killing. So is that, and that's where the division is going. Did you find a main command post? Did you find a sustainment unit? Are those the artillery guns? Like it makes it very difficult to identify which critical assets or high priority targets you're trying to identify. Yeah, and I, I, overall, I thought the 101st did a, a really good job with dispersion and camouflage. And, um, you know, we have other challenges with uh, our electronic signature and, and how we mask and hide and blend in the environment. Um, but uh, certainly the dispersion and camouflage, I thought was really, really good. And, uh, and, and you're right. Like when you see an aviation unit taking out chainsaws and axes, uh, to get bags into the woods and running hoses out to be able to fuel aircraft and the kind of dispersion that we have with aircraft, it, it you know, gives us a chance. I mean, Geronimo didn't have success killing stuff. On Geronimo the did not get to the farm. So that's pretty awesome. Or your command post. Or the command post. Uh, despite having, you know, had some success penetrating on a couple of occasions. Yes, sir. Uh, so, yeah, that's awesome. Um, what... Uh, what else, you know, were you really proud of that you guys had worked on before coming uh, to JRTC? Uh, what else were you really proud of? I think it, it really comes down to those fighting products. We talk about them all the time. You can't, you can't develop them at JRTC. The op tempo is way too fast. Muscle memory. You know, not extra time to sleep. <laughs> No extra time for activities? No, sir. Okay. Even, even that <laughs> aviator crew rest starts to get a little thin. Right on. <laughs> but, uh, but the fighting products have to be developed ahead of time. So we put a lot of effort into refining what we thought our fighting products were uh, and then bringing those into the rotation ready to go. Laminated, already kind of practiced with Rockus on. We had a really good idea of what you know our, our air movement tables were going to look like, what our X checks were going to look like. And at that point, it's much more plug and play, which you can do at pace. If you're trying to, you know, brainstorm and come up with all the answers while you're here, you're going to fall far behind very quickly. Yeah. Any comments on their products? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say the, you know, Tony said earlier, we have, you know, most of the task forces on the nights, deep nights, because that's when most of the planning happened. But, you know, even when, when the leadership went down for a few hours of crew rest, you know, making sure that the, 
the day shift, those those NCOs and your command posts and those lieutenants and captains understand those products and continue to update them. And, and so we did see that, especially later on in the rotation, they started getting good guidance from you know the leadership, your your field grades to them, so they can keep it going and continue to update those products and continue that parallel and collaborative planning with brigade who may make mostly you know they have a bigger staff so they have a greater planning capacity but if, if you lose that 10 hours or eight hours you're going down and you're starting back over so much changes and, and so those junior soldiers ncos and officers understand those fighting products that that was key and, and it, it is because that's a, a huge enabler when i thought jrtc did a great job of replicating the challenges of 24-hour like consistent 24-hour operations so the division is doing a lot of their coordination with my battle captain at, you know, 10 a.m., noon, 1400. My air crews aren't coming up until 1800. So you're, you've got to get into this FUOPS, COOPS transition and start really running it well, where you've got those battle captains running the fighting products. And it did take us time to gain that rhythm where we were asking the right questions of division I mean, as we consistently say that the aviation task force is going to be a division asset. Yeah. You're, we were, you were working missions. for the 21st Airborne Division. <laughs> yes, sir. The world's okayest uh, airborne division <laughs> in the world, right? Roger. With yours truly as the division commander, <laughs> and, right? And we loved every minute. <laughs> <laughs> loved it. Good, good. So, and that's, and what you said is right. Like we're, you worked for the division, um, supporting uh, rockassons, but also you know, division mission missions and tasks. Uh, supported uh, some special operations forces yes, in this rotation as well, um, and so we did okay of replicating the division. I, I think so. It forced us every day. We were juggling division missions. We were juggling rockassons missions, and then mostly ranger missions on the special operations side. Uh, and at any given point, I'm both executing and planning missions for each of those three entities. So it stressed the staff, it stressed the planning cells at that line trooper company level. Like if even if you're not an aviator that's on that night's mission, you're pulling a 14 to 16 hour day planning the next two nights worth of missions because the op tempo is that high. That's awesome. Um, so, uh, so, you know, you did a couple different types of missions. So obviously we employed uh, attack aviation and a strike role. Uh, also in um, reconnaissance and security roles. Yes, sir. Um, and then uh, a fair bit of lift, um, particularly with air assaults. So uh, let's let's start talking up front because you're an A64 guy, uh, attack aviation employment. And what uh, what went well, yes, what, you know, going forward, or what was challenging uh, in the rotation? Yes, sir. So uh, I would say... I've been in command 16 months now. One of the major efforts that I've had, we've done the division, 101st division has done a phenomenal job of resourcing us for aerial gunnery. So in the last 16 months, we've now done five aerial gunneries, which is phenomenal. Home station, getting to shoot all the time. What we've changed the paradigm on is we stopped trying to be focused on executing as teams of Apaches and get into platoon or larger execution. So that is something that I would say you absolutely. Had me, you had me at platoons. Roger. So that paid dividends out here. And, and it's something Jesse and I had talked about. There was rarely a scenario where I launched less than three Apaches at a time. Most of the time I was launching six operating in two separate platoons. And what that enabled was infinite flexibility. 
I could retask those platoons to do two things at once, uh, or I could mass combat power at a critical point where the, the brigade was either trying to penetrate or gain access to an LZ that was cherry, and we could move around firepower in a, in a greater way. It also allowed us the flexibility for fuel and contingencies as, as you're losing an aircraft in that fight you still have enough capability on station to continue moving forward. Yeah, and I mean, I think part of that's the, the maintaining contact with the enemy. I mean, yes, once, we've, once we've gained contact, it's maintaining contact. And um, for most of those missions, were you employing Shadow as well? Absolutely. Uh, every good weather period that we had, Shadow was out there. It is, again, one of those things that, you know, you don't make Shadow friends at LD. This has to be trained at home. You have to be pushing the ability to do all of the communications, uh, all of the specialized communications with shadows, whether they're going to retrans or they're going to broadcast to the Apaches to be able to pull that feed, the downlink. Uh, so all those things were trained pretty effectively at home. And when we got here, it was really just about employment. Uh, the JFE, I think my shadow operators were surprised that the sheer volume of what was out there and what they were finding and fighting. But by the time we got to the defense, um, the, the shadows were a critical capability. And we were killing, you know, 2S6s and ZSUs at distance with shadow, remote hellfires, and then pulling the Apaches in at that point to start taking down the armored formations. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that um, enabling and, and thinking of how we're, is, is a real change uh, in our army. I mean, or it's it's somewhat back to the future in some respects. Yes, sir. But uh, you can still hear occasionally people talk in in terms that are uh, really kind of rooted in what we were doing in Afghanistan and Iraq. Right. Um, and and it, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Another, another thing about the shadows, you, you know, you, obviously you don't plan at LD like you said, but you know the, the systems you showed up with and the process and procedures. You, That's the key. Your shadow platoon was never co-located with your aviation TA the, the entire fight. And so you had battle rhythm events for touch points using your different pace, your comms architecture. And then you also sent those leadership, um, your SP and your, your troop commander down to do a face-to-face -face the day of ex or the night before execution and then had a, a key rep from the task force there during execution to help those shadow operators understand the plan. So that was value added. I mean, that was right. And you talk about learning things. At one point, my, my uh, line troop commander, my alpha troop commander, just randomly said one day, like, sir, you got to remember, they're just a platoon. And he was 100% right. They're a platoon that is often sliced out without necessarily the right leadership. They don't have all the, the structure built in for comms redundancy. And that's really what helped us break the paradigm on that. And I said, okay, if we want to fight shadows and have them be a critical asset for us, then I need to give them task force horsepower. And that's where we went back and redrew their pace plan. We borrowed some pieces of equipment to bring down here from gator balls to grips, tried to figure out how we were going to give them upper TI sipper capabilities so they could pull ATOs and ACOs. We could push them graphics. We were able to get them the aviator packets. So we're all fighting off of common graphics. Yeah, like these cause things. Because other, otherwise you're fighting it like a heavy weapons platoon from an infantry battalion, a JBCP and a little bit of FM. You got it. And it's not able to enable that fight that's that's really a, a 
an aviation brigade fight, a division fight, or a BCT fight, or yes, at sir. least you know, critical component in those. And fights. that's where I feel those frustrations when you get the BEB saying the shadows aren't effective as they would like, or, or the aviation yeah. task force saying the same thing. We've got to resource them to be effective, yeah. and we were able to do some of that out here. And, and uh, you know, we talked some of this in RSOI. Um, I mean, this is, um, you know, I, I had I had this scar tissue from uh, as a brigade commander uh, coming through here. And I think it gets, you know, as you're describing the, the changes you made with leadership and putting horsepower against it, it's mission orders yes, uh, for those fights uh, as well, which I think helps enable them from a planning perspective uh, to do what we're asking them to do um, going forward. So... Um, and I think the emphasis that you describe on communication, on C2 architecture, and on leadership is, I think, key. If, if I mean, these are multi-million dollar aircraft. If they we want it to be effective, we got to put the right resources against it. We got to rehearse it. We got to practice it. Yes, sir. Forward. So that's awesome. Um, all right. What what was not awesome? Attack aviation. Uh, so I would say it's the continued challenge of massing fires and effects at the critical point, right? It's the engagement area planning, which, you know, we all see in doctrine yeah. and it sounds easy, but that is yeoman's work and it is math and it's hard and it involves getting all weather ground scouts into the right positions so that the triggers are timed appropriately. It involves aviators being regcon two at the right time, understanding exactly what amount of time they're going to need to to achieve effects from the trigger point. And all of that comes down to just really detailed execution. It doesn't have to be complicated. It has to be right. And when we get down to those triggers, we learned that it was hard. Uh, there were a few times where we were very successful with it and 3320 uh, in the aviation task force were making positive grounds on Geronimo. And there were other times where we were desynced and Geronimo was able to hit the gap keep moving at speed and blow right through the engagement area. Yeah. I and mean, we absolutely had successes in the windows of time where we had, um, Geronimo fixed with obstacle, uh, coming under direct fire attack under observ under observation, receiving effects from indirect fire and then piling age 64s on top of it. A, a lot of, a lot of killing. Right. You don't survive right. that you event. You don't survive that. But the times where we were just slightly off, right. the aircraft were late, or the fires were timed incorrectly off the trigger, then we saw, I mean, it's, you will learn in the summertime, Artillery Road and Youngstown Road, like your windows to engage are small. If you're doing it the right way and flying tactically, you're talking about 10 seconds sometimes. Yeah. And, and Geronimo knows that, and they hit the gap. Hundred percent, and I, you know, m my experience watching this, and my own experience as a brigade commander here. Incidentally, for everybody, I got the trigger wrong with age sixty fours <laughs> when I was a brigade commander here. Um, you know, and you know, we can't get too cute with the triggers. Nope. Um, we got to have a simple plan that's detailed, and there's like the real math behind this. Um, you know, up front uh, to get it right, but when we get it right. Um, it, there's no coming back from it for the enemy. Um, you know, we, we get all of those um, forms of contact at a decisive point. It's lethal. And the H-64, I mean, it's a flying tank. Yes, sir. It's, uh, is, is really how we got to think about it. Um, and it, it was, and we, we got effects, and it was painful 
the the instances, you know, I'm thinking of the one fight uh, in in the counterattack where uh, the artillery went long, yep. uh, and it wasn't by much, but it was enough that that really caused us to not slow down enough, and we were getting effects with H64s. But if we'd been able to stop them, yep. we would have. I mean, it would have been it would have yeah. been a mess. Oh yes, it'd have been a mess. And, and Geronimo was smart, right? They they knew they were going to try to take advantage of weather rolling in that night. Absolutely. So the window with H64s was relatively small, and while we had done the planning, the planning wasn't detailed enough. And the fires were just behind Geronimo, and they kept moving. No, they absolutely tried to time that counterattack with the weather to take away uh, ISR and to take away A64, which is, I think is you know what we expect our adversaries will try and do. Absolutely. So, They're not going to run into uh, the teeth of it. They're going to try to use what they can to mitigate that power. Right on. Um, in terms of ground integration or integration with ground forces, uh, air ground integration, you know, what— uh, what went well and what do you think uh, needs to be better going forward? I think we did a good job of choosing the right LNO. So I chose an aviation LNO that hurt. One of my best captains out of the S3 shop, and we put him co-located in the brigade. It's like you've read some lessons learned from before. <laughs> yes, sir. Right, I've had awesome. some decent bosses. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you want to name a couple of them? <laughs> oh, ab- absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's guys like Colonel, now General Bernie Harrington and E.J. Irvin, and yeah. guys who have come through here, uh, now General Pepin, who have taught me the power of LNOs. Yeah. Uh, so without question, we got that part right. Probably could have spent more time, and summer turnover hurt it a little bit, but the BAO team was brand new. Yeah. And the BAO and, is that primary planner at the brigade level. Hey, and if you're watching <laughs> BAO and assistant BAO, you guys worked insanely hard. So uh, oh, plenty absolutely. of sweat. Oh, no from, doubt. What, right. Uh, what we're saying is we had to be better synced with them. Yeah. You can't have the aviation task force and the BAO running in different directions. 100%. So we've got to make sure that relationship is built and we're synchronized when we start to do, you know, effective planning. And, uh, you know, for the maneuver friends out there, uh, you know, the ground maneuver friends out there, the the shared shared warfighting products. um, It's huge. It's huge. I mean, mean, X-checks have to be the same. The Brigade S3 and our aviation S3 have to be tied at the hip when it comes to the X-checks, the air movement tables. Uh, getting through kind of the bump plan and the details of air assault planning. Yeah. It, it's got to be the same. You're absolutely right. And then the maneuver graphics. And we got there. We got there uh, with live fire, which I think made a huge difference. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Uh, going forward. Okay. Uh, so let's talk, let's talk air assaults. Right. Uh, would we, would we, uh, what surprised us with the, uh, with executing air assault? So we executed a, a brigade air assault. Uh, at the beginning, and then a battalion air assault, and then we planned a battalion air assault, uh, live fire. Unfortunately, we weren't able to execute due to weather. Yes, sir. Uh, what did we learn? So, I mean, coming from the 101st, you would think that we've got, you know, air assaults down, and, and we do. We're very effective at air assaults. But when you add in a tough environment with an enemy that is thinking and adjusting, like air assault is a significant emotional event for both the aviation and the ground force. Uh, I think we absolutely learned that the planning has to be parallel. And Jesse and I were just talking about this. There, There is the potential to say you have to do all of the MDMP at the BCT level, make those decisions in kind of co-adev and get through wargaming before you start talking about air assault planning. 
the reality is with this op tempo and the scale of these air assaults, if you wait until that point, you are too danger close to execution. So it has to be a parallel plan. The key is understanding those key outputs. And if we can refine some of the capabilities and packages, I think that's where we've really gone back and looked at what can we do a little bit better in the 101st? We, we know air assaults. What we have to get to is slightly more predictable packages like you see in the special ops side. So essentially every time we went into a ranger mission, now I understand the scale was a little bit smaller, but their packages were predefined. It was, hey, package one, package two, package three. And there was no changing what was going in. It was a matter of where was it going? What was the timing? Was there a deception plan? But we have to get a little bit better at that on, you know, the, the 101st side of a scout infill should generally look like this. The sustainability package of a scout infill should look like this. The guns, if we're going to move in a battery, it should probably look like this, a standardized package that gets you a set capability. Uh, when we try to get extremely complicated with the plan and we're mixing everything up or you're getting to the point where every lift and serial requires a reconfiguration of UH-60s and CH-47s, you get this increased level of complexity and risk that is really just driving, driving down your likelihood of execution. Uh, because yeah. the, the enemy already gets a vote, and it's already going to have friction to execute. And he cheats. I'm kidding. He doesn't <laughs> cheat. But he votes twice. Yeah, what, what it gains you is it gains you time. And that's sure. what you need during the plan and prep phases. You need time. You know you have to execute. And we, the plan and prep is where you make your money. So if we have standardized, if we're not showing up with a blank sheet of paper for our air movement table every time we do an air assault, yep. then it saves that you know that that product and then we have these packages we're able to we're able to standardize and then you're able to start the air assault planning process earlier in conjunction with mdmp and you're able to start hitting those gates the ipc and then as soon as the ground tactical plan is approved you have your amcm you sit down and, and they brief it, it to the aviators so then we can go back the aviation has to has to do all their calculations and all that well, there's like some math involved. There's, 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 right? there's, a, there's a lot of math. You know? Yeah, we got to figure out our fuel fuel plans and, and and there's and how much we can lift. And, where, and then there's usually more than one LZ, multiple LZs. Yeah. So it's, it's complex movement that we need the time between the AMCM, the AMB. Right. But we owe that back to the commander, probably twenty to the Air Assault Task Force commander, that BCT commander, twenty four hours before execution. Yeah. So, so right. then we can continue our TLPs and rehearsals down at the Aviation Bingo. Task Force. Well, and well, for the, the maneuver. And for the, the maneuver as well. The tendency is that the car is essentially the the last thing, right? Like that is the smoking gun. The reality is it shouldn't be that way. The car has to be, per the gold book, 24 to 30 hours out. Because after that, you're going to execute the aviation task force re yeah. rehearsal, the air crew briefs. You want the ground force to be able to get with their troops and companies and be able to execute rehearsals at their level. Well, and in particular, we looked at PZ rehearsals, right? You got it. Where, you know, we're hard. And if, if it's important then it's got to be rehearsed. Yes, sir. Right. And, and we uh, joked about it at the AAR. Like every air assault from an aviation perspective goes to die at the heavy PZ and the FARP. If you're not rehearsing both of those things, then they're going to come up yeah. and bite you. And so, you know, watching uh, this rotation, um, you know, reminded of uh, the sins that we often make as maneuverists uh, that affect other warfighting functions. Uh, unintentionally, all, sure. all well intentioned, right? But uh, but it's like time you can't get back. And if if we if we can't get to a simple detailed plan, 
then it's we're pretty challenged in the, in this environment yes, in sir. large scale combat operations to rehearse it to the level of fidelity that we need to be successful. But the the pieces that were present that helped us mitigate some of these challenges, Rock Six was in the IPC, he was in the AMCM, he was in the AMB. I clearly understood his intent. So even as things started to go wrong, we conducted three COMEXs to make sure that we had good comms. And throughout the execution, the Air Mission Commander and the Aviation Task Force Commander could talk and generally understood what he was looking for, what his capabilities were, in which priority order. And we were able to adjust to get a majority of his force. Which, I mean, right, at the end of the day, commanders have to drive the operations process. And, I mean, spot on uh, that engagement between, you know, you and Rock 6 uh, to get that done. Um, okay, uh, so let me shift, uh, well, in this vein, but... You know, what advice, you know, I'm infantry officer by trade, you know, what advice as aviators um, would you give uh, maneuver officers, company commanders, battalion brigade assistant S3s and brigade S3s and XOs? What what advice would you give them um, as as they think about the employment of, of attack aviation and planning for air assaults? Yes, sir. Jesse and I were talking about this a little while ago. I think Everybody has a pretty good idea or at least an understanding of a deliberate attack or an out-of-contact attack. They understand they want to throw aviation at, you know, high payoff targets, and that makes perfect sense. The piece that we have to potentially focus on more as maneuverous, as you say, is the transitions and how aviation can help through those transitions. So what does aerial resupply look like and how can you use it at certain times to avoid culmination? When you get to culmination at Sagacite, right, based on the attack, and you've now fought for 24 hours straight, how can you use reconnaissance, security, aerial resupply missions to give you that buffer zone between you and the enemy before the counterattack? So I was, I was talking with uh, General Bernabe uh, today, and he talked about spring-loading sustainment, right? And so, I mean, that's part of it. If we've planned for it in the yes, transition sir. and we can, and it's spring loaded, as we're close to reaching culmination from us, you know, from that standpoint, we're aerial resupply, we're evacuating casualties to maintain that momentum uh, going forward. Absolutely. That's where aviation can really come in. And as you say, like people get tired, systems don't. If those systems are built for aerial resupply, if we understand that as soon as the, you know, the ground force is, in the position on the objective that we're now going to transition to an aerial reconnaissance or security effort that continues to push out a buffer zone until we can get the ground scouts maneuvered potentially with another smaller scale air assault, get them back into position so that you get that critical, you know, reaction time and maneuver space. Yeah. It's easy to say, but hard to do. Yeah. It's only saying because like in the 12th hour, we have this good idea to throw attack aviation in a problem set, but we're a maneuver force just like that infantry battalion who, who just went in to, to see Sagacite. They had to plan it. They had to rehearse it and resource it. Well, we can aviation can absolutely work during the transition, but we have to know about it early enough so we can do our planning, issue our mission orders, do our rehearsals, and have the, have the crews postured. It, it just, it's got to be thought through early enough. Yeah, so this has got to be... You know, I'll back up to the audience. I said, I mean, uh, staff officers in particular, assistant S3s and brigade threes and XOs, battalion threes and XOs. It's the war game. 
I mean, if we have all the right people at the war game and we're talking about these things and we understand what the blue checkbook is, what we have out there, we also understand what the red checkbook is because it's like the part of why we're transitioning is because there's more enemy out there. And we seize an objective, we defeat the enemy. Okay, there's follow-on echelons or there's remnants of those forces. If we war game this all the way out, Okay, we're gonna look at the blue checkbook and say, well, what do I got yeah, left? Well, I got some lift aviation. Great. Let me move casualties out. Let me bring ammunition, water, reinforcements, replacements in. And then, even if it's not perfect, if we have it planned, if we have to make an adjustment from a primary to an alternate LZ, or even shift the timings a little bit, like we can do that. But we have a base plan, and that I think only comes if we if we war game this stuff out. Without question, and we were talking about it. That's how the commander buys down the risk. We love to play the the hasty attack game, and that's really remnants of coin where yeah. we just tell Apaches to go out, find stuff, and kill stuff. In this fight, in the Lisco fight, it's got to be more deliberate. We have to understand task and purpose, and get out of that kind of safe space of well, just go attack stuff. Yeah, we we have to be tied in the ground maneuver plan. We got to be looking forty eight to seventy two hours out and how we can affect the ground scheme maneuver. Yeah, and into that, if we want them to do a reconnaissance and security mission, then we need to give reconnaissance and security, security guidance, and then we need to have. UAS and support, and then we need to have fires, and we ha- need to have the graphics that enable that. Absolutely. So we're not having fratricide, so that we're synchronized, and and all that comes out of the war game. Without uh, question. Doing this yes, right. sir. Okay. All right. Uh, final thoughts. Alpha six. Yeah, a, a, attack aviation. I mean, we're a multifunctional aviation task force. We come here with attack aviation, shadows, Chinooks, heavy lift, and our assault aircraft, as well as our medevac. So. Understanding what you have to support the fight and how to employ them, employing the right LNOs to help get the aviation task force commander synchronized with your adjacent units planning, and then having an LNO at division because you work for division. So as aviation task force, you're not only supporting rocket signs or whatever BCTs out here, you're you're supporting the entire division. So in this case, we supported Rangers. So having that LNO exchange with the Rangers was critical for you to be able to do all those missions Absolutely. in support of the Rangers. And having a division LNO, you're able to reach out to division resources, attend those meetings, and, and get the information you need to fight on behalf of the division commander and achieve his intent. Saber 6. I, I would just say take on the challenge. I mean, we, we came into this in pretty good position, at least from my perspective and that of the staff, and JRTC is going to meet you where you are. So we were ready for air assaults, and they raised the bar, right? We were ready for attack aviation to do a lot of different things, and JRTC raised the bar. Both, you know, CTCs here in the States, you're going to fight a thinking enemy. There was there were more flares in the air uh, for us to react to, you know, simulated SA-18s and SA-24s. It's phenomenal training our frequencies were getting jammed. We were constantly running through contingencies. We're moving FARPs around as, you know, people are taking indirect fire. It's phenomenal training from the aviation perspective. And, and honestly, it was a lot of fun. Hey, uh, so uh, first, I'm like beyond glad to hear uh, that, that we gave you the challenges that you and your team, you know, wanted and needed. Uh, had a ton of fun uh, watching uh, your task force as well as the Rakasans. I thought, I thought you guys uh, got better every single day. And you know, we talk about you guys came to win, and that's what we yes, want. Sir. I mean, at the end of the day, and you and you won some fights. You didn't win all of them, but you won some fights. Um, and I, you know, I certainly believe that 
the organization that learns fastest is most likely to win in combat. And I think you guys did that. And it, it was really cool to watch. Um, I particularly appreciated the ideological commitment to camouflage and dispersion. Because um, I think ultimately, I mean, that's, this is important stuff for our army. I mean, not just for your task force, the 101st. Um, I, I was, I was candidly like very surprised and in a very good way. And I, I think that bodes well for, for where our army's going. Um, there's no silver bullet. There's no, there's no magic, uh, device that we're going to create. Um, we're obviously moving forward from a modernization perspective, uh, with a lot of things, but you guys did a lot of the fundamental things, right. That are going to, you know, preserve combat power going forward. Um, Likewise, you know, your conversation about the liaison officers, um, I mean, it's, it seems simple, but it makes all the difference in the world uh, going forward. And then finally, um, you know, just as an aside, I, I, I greatly appreciate uh, your feedback in the after action reviews, your candor, um, your ownership of the things that, that you, you and your team struggled with, uh, but also providing candid feedback um, to, to, to Geronimo. Uh, to us about the things that we need to do better. Um, and, and then, you know, with the Rockassons as well, I mean, I think it's a true commitment to the profession and it made it a ton of fun to be around. And um, thanks for joining us. Thanks for this conversation. Uh, look forward to seeing you out there in the army. Appreciate what you're doing, uh, making the 101st uh, and making our army better. So thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on the crucible, the JRTC experience. The Joint Readiness Training Center is the premier crucible training experience. We prepare units to fight and win in the most complex environments against world-class opposing forces. We are America's leadership laboratory. Again, we'd like to thank our guests for participating. This podcast was created and produced by Mr. John Mabes. It was recorded and edited by Chief Thomas Rich and researched by First Lieutenant Anthony Cho. Intro vocals were done by Mr. Robert Chopper. Special thanks to Captain Jermaine Branch and Mr. Jeff England from Public Affairs. Be sure to like and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest warfighting TTPs learned through the crucible that is the Joint Readiness Training Center. Follow us by going to https colon forward slash forward slash l-i-n-k-t-r dot ee forward slash jrtc we'd like to thank our partners at the center for army lessons learned of the combined arms center especially the jrtc call observations detachment be sure to follow them on social media as well follow them at https colon forward slash forward slash www dot army dot mil forward slash c-a-l-l don't forget to like subscribe and review us wherever you listen or watch your podcasts and be sure to stay tuned for more in the near future the crucible the jrtc experience is a product of the joint readiness training center